Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast, with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the literary traditions connected to the Viking Age, both the rather short and repetitive texts carved into runestones spread out wherever Vikings went, with the noticeable exception of Iceland, as well as the sagas. The sagas were written in the Middle Ages, that's true, but they still contain some passages and information that inform our understanding of the Viking Age. We spoke at length about Snorri Sturluson, the 13th century Icelandic politician and poet who wrote two important books in the Library of Sources to Viking Age Scandinavia, the Prose Edda and Heimskringla. Last time, I also told you that this was going to be the episode dedicated to Old Norse religion and mythology. But as I was sitting down to prepare this episode, I soon realized that there's just too much material. It can't all be crammed into one episode without either skipping a whole lot of interesting bits or the episode becoming far too long for what's convenient. So what I've decided to do is to divide it into two separate episodes. Today, we'll focus on Old Norse religion, that is religious practices, to the extent that we really know anything about that. And then next time, we'll be all about Old Norse mythology. Then we'll dive headfirst into the stories of the gods, the insulting squirrel Ratatosk, what clouds are really made of, and why Vikings made sure their nails were kept neat and short at all times. Episode 18, Old Norse Religion. I hate to do this, but once again, I'll have to preface an episode with a caveat that our knowledge of the topic at hand is rather patchy. We don't have any contemporary written Scandinavian sources giving us a systematic overview of religious practices, beliefs and sacrifices in Viking Age Scandinavia. There are several sources to our knowledge of the Norse myths, but few of them are written in the times when the Viking Age Scandinavians worshipped the old gods and believed in the myths told about them. Instead, almost all the written sources that we base our knowledge on, such as the Prose Edda that we talked about last time, were written sometimes in the 12th and 13th centuries. That was at least a hundred years after the last Scandinavians had converted to Christianity, and long after the living memory of the old religion was gone. The only contemporary written records describing pre-Christian religion among Scandinavians come from more or less horrified strangers, such as early Christian missionaries to Scandinavia and Ibn Fadlan, whose eyewitness accord of the Rus funeral we discussed in the episode about Serkland. As biased and lacking in understanding as these accounts may be, they are the only surviving written contemporary accounts of the Old Norse religion. One of the Christian missionary eyewitnesses was a guy called Ansgar. He came to Scandinavia in the year 829. He had limited success in his attempts at spreading this new religion of his, but his lasting impact is from his writings describing late Viking Age Scandinavia and the local religion, albeit through a thick prism of prejudice. Add to that the fact that the pre-Christian religion probably varied from place to place and changed over time, and you'll realize that we really can't say whether whatever we do know did happen at one place at one point in time, was an isolated one-off or part of an established, universally accepted cult. 
Okay, that's a slight exaggeration. Archaeologists have been able to identify some patterns in religious practices that were spread throughout both time and space. But you get my point. It doesn't help that for centuries the church tried to suppress the Old Norse religion, all its practices and its mythology. People who were caught celebrating fertility ceremonies with pagan roots in order to ensure a good harvest were severely punished. Major festivals in the old religious calendar, such as the midwinter and midsummer sacrifices, were taken over and transformed into Christian holidays, Christmas and St. John the Baptist Day. Cultic centers were destroyed and sometimes churches were built on the sites. But all these efforts were only partially successful. In many places in the countryside, people continued to carry out the old familiar ceremonies for good luck and a bountiful harvest, and bits and pieces of myths survived in sayings and stories told around the fire during long winter nights. Some place names, such as Odense in Denmark, Ullensaker in Norway and Frösen in Sweden, still bear witness to the influence of the old religion, with geographical locations dedicated to certain gods taking their, these deities' names. The days of the week also retain the names of Tyr, Odin, Thor and Frey. In fact, they do so in English as well. The names of the weekdays, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, Tyr's Day, Odin's Day, Thor's Day and Frey's Day, still attest to the Viking influence over the British Isles that we've talked about in earlier episodes. Nonetheless, knowledge of the old religion weakened over the centuries. It was only when Romanticism and the search for national roots became popular in the 19th century that the Scandinavians once again turned to the lore of the Vikings. Ancient customs and myths were rediscovered by the modern-day Danes, Icelanders, Norwegians and Swedes who embraced their heritage enthusiastically. People started to give their children Viking names and countless boys were called Thor, Vidar and Gunnar, whereas girls were given names such as Gerd, Gudrun and Sigrid. Also streets in the rapidly expanding cities and towns of the industrializing Scandinavia were given names from Norse mythology. And so today you can live on Thor's or Odin's streets and take your dog for a walk in Park Vanadis in Stockholm, for instance. Artists throughout Scandinavia also rediscovered the old myths of the Vikings and were inspired by them. National art museums in Oslo, Copenhagen, Reykjavik and Stockholm all display paintings depicting scenes from Norse mythology, and poets and artists drew on the language and content of the old myths. As an example, the Danish national anthem, written in 1819, invokes the goddess of beauty and bloom, calling Denmark Freya's Hall. Also, artists elsewhere in the world became fascinated with the old Norse mythology. Richard Wagner borrowed heavily from Scandinavian lore when he wrote his operas, and it's hard to imagine the fantasy worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin without the inspiration from Scandinavian mythology. Okay, so we've established that there's quite a lot that we don't know about the Old Norse religion. But what do we know, or at least think we know, about religious practices among pre-Christian Scandinavians? Well, first of all, they almost certainly didn't understand the concept of religion in the same way as Christian Europe did. Christianity is a revealed religion with a clear theology where belief in certain well-defined dogmas is central. By contrast, it seems that the Vikings didn't have a defined set of beliefs or codified holy texts. Theirs was a tribal religion based on tradition and nature. The religion of the Vikings centered on understanding what was going on in the world. What is thunder? 
Where does the world come from? How does summer turn into winter? As well as trying to get the gods to favor one's own endeavors and provide plentiful harvests, healthy children, and victory in battle. The cult was much more important than beliefs, as it was widely understood that in order to please the gods, one had to perform certain rites. Failing to do so would risk the wrath of the gods and ultimately perhaps even endanger one's life. In addition, the gods weren't the only ones demanding to be pleased. The Old Norse cult also included elves, spirits and other creatures as well as ancestor worship. In all of this, the Scandinavian pre-Christian religion was very similar to that of other Indo-European peoples, such as the Slavs, the Greeks and the Romans. Another difference between Christianity and the Old Norse religion was that the Scandinavians didn't have any clear-cut hierarchy of priests that had a monopoly on performing religious ceremonies. Many of the religious rites and practices were conducted in the home, and it can be assumed that variations in the cult were common and significant. Whenever a religious ceremony was to be carried out, it was led by the person with the highest status or most authority, or at least by someone who that person had appointed. This means that the head of the household led ceremonies for his family, the chieftain performed the proper sacrifices for his clan, the commander of the troops conducted the worship when the warriors were gathered, and on a national level, the king was responsible for leading the cult to ensure the safety and well-being of his people. Even though many different persons could lead religious ceremonies and participate in the cult, there were some who were specifically tasked with performing religious duties. The Gothi, that we talked about in connection to uh, the legal system in Viking Age Iceland, also had religious functions mentioned several times in the Icelandic sagas. The sagas mention that also women could fill this function, and such a woman was called the Gudja. Unfortunately, most knowledge about women leading religious ceremonies, as well as female powers and goddesses being worshipped, was systematically suppressed by the church once Scandinavia was won for Christianity. To the male-dominated church, the thought of worshipping females, or women leading the worship, was especially alien and even repugnant. The most important part of the Old Norse cult was the sacrifice, known as the blut. This could be both a public and a private ceremony, and there were several sacrificial ceremonies throughout the year. People sacrificed to the gods, the elves, or their ancestors' spirits. The most common reason for a blut was to ensure success, or at least divine favor, in some undertaking, such as a business deal, a harvest, or a little bit of raiding. The most common form of sacrifice was the killing of an animal, typically a pig or a horse, that the participants then ate together. The meat would be boiled and eaten at a ceremonial meal, where they would also pass around a blessed drink, usually ale or mead, but sometimes wine among the rich elites that could afford this imported beverage. The blood of the sacrificed animal was collected since it was believed that it contained magic powers. It was sprinkled on images of the gods, on the walls, and on the participants in the ceremony. Sometimes, during larger and more elaborate blood ceremonies, dancers, music, and singing were involved in the rituals as well. Two of the most important sacrifices of the year took place in the middle of October, four weeks after the fall equinox, and in the middle of January. This great midwinter blut was called Yule, and this is the word still used for Christmas in Scandinavia today, and remains in the English word Yuletide, for instance. Both these two sacrifices 
were especially associated with Frey, the god of fertility, and a pig was sacrificed to him. To this day, the Christmas ham is a centerpiece at a Scandinavian Christmas meal. The so-called summer blut took place in the middle of April, four weeks after the spring equinox, and it was dedicated to Odin. It was performed to ensure victory in war, and it marked the beginning of the Vikings' annual expeditions and raids. Even though animals such as pigs and horses were the most common sacrifices, some ceremonies also might have included human sacrifices. In episode 15, Serkland, I already mentioned Ibn Fadlan's eyewitness account of the sacrifice of a young woman at a funeral of a Viking chieftain in a Scandinavian colony along the Volga. And archaeologists excavating bogs in Scandinavia have found bodies of people assumed to have been ritually killed. The Norse myths also contain several instances of people who are sacrificed to the gods, especially to Odin. Sometimes these people sacrifice themselves voluntarily, and sometimes they are prisoners of war. It is, of course, impossible to know to what extent these mythical descriptions of human sacrifices reflect the procedures surrounding actual sacrifices of people, and it should be noted that there are those who emphatically reject the notion that Viking Age Scandinavians practiced human sacrifices. The private religious sacrifices and ceremonies were similar to the major public ones, and they were usually led by the head of the household and or his wife. There were family ceremonies at fixed times of the year, such as the Alpha Blut, or the sacrifice to the elves, which was a ceremony that took place in the winter and was led by the mistress of the house. The sacrifice itself was shrouded in secrecy and no non-participants were allowed to be present, which means that the exact nature of the event is lost to posterity. These sacrifices to the elves, who were believed to live in close proximity to the human dwellings, were very important. You had to keep the elves happy because they had the power to save or to ruin you and your family. Another important private sacrifice was the so-called Velsiblut, where the penis of a stallion, butchered during the fall, was taken by the mistress of the house. She would keep the limb in a wooden box together with linen and leeks, and in the evening on the day of the ceremony, she'd take it out and let it pass from person to person during a religious ritual. It's not entirely clear what this particular blood was meant to achieve, at least not to us a thousand years later. At the time, I'm sure it made sense though. Other important religious events were births, weddings and burials. Since giving birth was dangerous for the mother and the child, people would try to protect them during labor by chanting prayers and singing songs to the goddesses Frigg and Freya. If all went well, the nine days after the birth, the child was officially recognized by its father. He did this during a ritual where he placed the child on his lap and water was then sprinkled on the child and the name of the newborn was announced to those assembled. Often the child would receive the name of a dead relative that the parents admired because Viking Age Scandinavians believed that characteristics of a person could be transferred to a child by giving the child the same name. After the ceremony, the child was a member of the family with the rank and rights that his or her particular family and clan enjoyed. This also meant that the parents could no longer kill the child without it being considered murder. This was important since killing newborns through exposure, that is leaving them in the forest to be killed by the weather or wild animals, was an accepted way to limit the family size in pre-Christian Scandinavia. As I mentioned in episode 16, The Viking at Home, 
Weddings were solemn unions, not only of two people, but also two families, that became joined by the bond of expected solidarity through the marriage of two members of these families. Because of this, marriage concerned the whole family, and a couple needed the permission of their fathers or guardians to be allowed to marry. The wedding itself consisted of a long series of intricate rituals. It was widely believed that the nuptial customs had to be carried out exactly according to tradition in order to ensure that the marriage would be happy and fruitful. The process started with the groom and several of his kinsmen going to the bride's father to formally ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. If he agreed, a date was set for the wedding, and that was followed by the negotiations about the economic aspects of the marriage, such as the size of the dowry and rules of inheritance. The pledge to marry was legally binding, even if the wedding itself hadn't taken place yet. The whole process culminated in the wedding feast. Here, the two families got together and celebrated for the proverbial three days. The couple would swear oaths before the goddess Var, and a depiction of Thor's hammer, Mjölnir, was placed on the bride's lap for the god's blessing and protection. Freya and Freya, the god and goddess of fertility and love, were also invoked. The newlyweds were then led to the marital bed by witnesses carrying torches. This ceremony, and the presumed consummation taking place shortly thereafter, was considered the point where the couple became legally married. As far as burial was concerned, Viking Age Scandinavians usually buried their dead in close proximity to where they lived, since they needed easy access to the graves. The reason for this was that ancestor worship was an important religious practice. Pre-Christian Scandinavians believed that, much like the elves, the spirits of the dead ancestors could bestow blessings on the living, but also curse them from beyond the grave if the dead weren't treated with proper respect. Libations and other sacrifices took place on the burial mounds, and at blut meals, toasts to the dead were a part of the ritual. Another integral part of the Old Norse religion was what we today would consider magic. One of the best known practices was the seid, which was a form of sorcery to find out things about the past or the future, but also to affect the physical world, for instance by making people fall in love, easing childbirth, bringing on madness, starting storms, sinking ships, and making swords useless in battle. The Vikings believed that Freya, that goddess from the Danish national anthem, had introduced the gods to the art of seid, and she had taught Odin, the king of the gods, how to do it. In Norse mythology, Odin is the most prominent practitioner of the seid. Some humans also claimed to know the art of seid, but not just anyone could dabble in it. Those who were in the know were skilled practitioners who would travel from homestead to homestead performing for money. During Seid, the practitioner would reach a state of trance by the help of a group of women who would dance, pray and sometimes sing magic chants to invoke gods or spirits. The magic songs sung during Seid were called Galdar. It's not known exactly what these songs sounded like, but given that the word is related to modern Scandinavian words for madness, as well as the crowing of a rooster, scholars assume that they were intense, loud and high-pitched, and possibly not very easy on the ear. Almost all practitioners of Seid were women, and it was considered unmanly and even sexually shameful for men to practice Seid. Nonetheless, there were some men who did, even though they brought social stigmatization on themselves by doing so. Sometimes, 
men who practiced Seid would even be persecuted. Some scholars believe that this was because there was some sexual aspect to the practice. As evidence, they point to places in the Icelandic sagas where a staff used during Seid is compared to a phallus. But we don't know for sure. In any case, it makes the fact that the ubermanly Odin, king of the gods, was a skilled practitioner even more interesting. It's a classic example of an instance where you acutely sense that you don't have enough of the pieces to make sense of the puzzle, but that if you did, an interesting picture no doubt would appear. Another form of magic used by the pre-Christian Scandinavians was the runes. In fact, this was a practice that continued on well into later Christian centuries. In the Viking Age, the runes were, of course, the symbols used for writing that we talked about in the last episode, but the Vikings also believed that they held magic powers and whoever found out their secret was able to use it and somehow bend reality to his will. As with Seid, the Vikings believed that Odin, the king of the gods, knew the secret of the runes and could use their magic. In magic contexts, the runes were used to create amulets or to strengthen blessings or spells, for instance by writing the name of Tyr, the god of duels and courage, on a sword in order to ensure victory. But the runes were also used for divination, and in modern Swedish the verb utröna, literally to extract from the runes, still means to find something out. The Vikings did not place great importance on elaborate temples or other man-made places of worship. Most libations or other sacrifices took place either at home or outdoors in some suitable grove or other scenic spot. In some instances, there were halls erected for public use, but in many cases they were also utilized for political and economic purposes and not exclusively as buildings for religious ceremonies. Still. There were a few centers of worship here and there in Scandinavia, often recognizable by place names including a word meaning something like hall, grove, or consecrated. For instance, words like sal, hall, lund, ve, or vi. These were halls, mounds, or groves cordoned off with a symbolic boundary. Within this boundary, the ground was holy and special rules applied. You weren't allowed to spill blood there, for instance. The best known of these places is perhaps the temple at Uppsala in modern-day Sweden, about 75 kilometers north of Stockholm. The temple there was described in some detail by a German missionary called Adam of Bremen, who visited Uppsala in the 11th century. At the time, that area was the last major center where the old religion still held sway in an otherwise already largely Christianized Scandinavia. According to Adam, the boundary around the temple was a golden chain hanging from its gables, and it could be seen from far away. Inside the building, there were three statues depicting three gods. In the middle was a statue of Thor, who Adam described as the mightiest of the Viking gods. The statue of Thor was flanked by statues of Odin and Frey. Odin was clad in armor, and the fertility god Frey had an enormous phallus, which rather embarrassed the modest Christian missionary. To make matters worse, worshippers chanted the filthiest songs in his honor. They were so dirty that Adam of Bremen, the good Christian that he was, refused to write them down. There were priests officiating in the temple, administering the sacrifices to the three gods. Each god had his own area of expertise. In case of a plague, the priests would sacrifice to Thor. In order to secure victory in a war, they would offer a sacrifice to Odin. 
and when there was a wedding, they would sacrifice to Frey. In addition, there was a cycle of fixed sacrifices according to the early calendar. Adam of Bremen especially describes one sacrifice that took place every nine years, when representatives from all parts of Sweden participated. Everyone in the land had to contribute, and Christians who did not wish to participate had to pay a fine. This major festival took place around the spring equinox and lasted for nine days. Nine males of various kinds of animals were sacrificed and strung up in sacred trees around the temple. According to the horrified Christian chronicler, humans were among the sacrifices too. Every day, one man and two animals were sacrificed to the gods, and their corpses were hung in the holy grove. The blood from the sacrifices were collected and sprinkled on the altars, the walls, both inside and outside, as well as on the participants. At the end, 27 rotting corpses of various animals, such as dogs and horses, as well as humans, hung from the trees. Adam of Bremen wasn't the first missionary who had tried to convert the pagan Scandinavians to Christianity. The first known attempts were made already in the early 9th century. We won't talk too much about it here and now, because we'll revisit that topic in more detail in a future episode. In this context, I'd just like to point out that the switch from one religion to another was a long process, and the Old Norse religion lost ground gradually over more than a century. In Sweden, and especially in the area surrounding Uppsala with its great temple, the old religion held out the longest. The last nine-day Blut festival at the Uppsala temple was most likely performed in the year 1078, since the Christian king Ingold I destroyed the temple in 1087, on the eve of the next festival. After Sweden was Christianized, a church was built on the site of the old temple in order to eradicate the very memory of its existence. But despite this, Uppsala retained its religious significance to the Swedes. To this very day, the Archbishop of Sweden resides there, and the Uppsala Cathedral is the most important church in the country. The attempts of the representatives of the new religion to stamp out any remaining traces of the old cult weren't limited to Uppsala. Images of the old gods had been very popular among the Viking Age Scandinavians, Sometimes, these were only small figurines symbolizing a god or his or her attribute, such as an image of Thor's hammer Mjölnir, and sometimes they were larger poles with faces of a god or a goddess carved at the top. After the triumph of Christianity, it became a serious crime to own any such images. No full-size statues of gods have been found anywhere in Scandinavia, despite Adam of Bremen's account and descriptions from other eyewitnesses. The most likely reason for this is that all the big statues were destroyed by zealous Christians. But small figurines can be difficult to find, so there is plenty of archaeological evidence of pagan images and amulets surviving long into the Christian era. Farmers would continue to hedge their bets and pray to the Christian God for the salvation of their souls, but leave the prayers for a bountiful harvest to his older colleagues. The practice of putting out milk or butter or other foodstuffs to the elves in order to secure their favor persisted long after Christianity had become the only permitted religion in Scandinavia. Some rites connected to Frey, ensuring a bountiful year, were carried out far into the Middle Ages. It has often been argued that the current Swedish midsummer celebrations, still practiced today, where a rather phallic-looking pole adorned with greenery and flowers is shoved into the ground while the crowd dances around it, also has its roots in the pre-Christian fertility ceremony. 
Next time, we'll continue to talk about Old Norse religion, but then we'll focus on the mythology, the stories of the gods and how the world was created, and how it will one day be destroyed in an epic battle between good and evil. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, I recommend you tell your friends and co-workers about it. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review, and perhaps a quintet of stars on uh, iTunes or whatever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners, and to motivate me to go on producing the show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you're more of a Twitterer, then you can always follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.